0: Well, take your Bible, turn with me to James chapter 2, James chapter 2. We have read Romans chapter 5, bringing us to the wonderful truth and the doctrine of justification by faith, the reality that is God's love that has saved us. We read that in Romans 5 as we're working through the book of Romans. We have just sung three hymns all about the greatness of our Savior. And now as we read James chapter 2, so what? What does the greatness of our God and the gospel of grace do in the life of a true believer? And that ought to produce in us a life of good works. Follow with me as I read James chapter 2. I'm going to read the whole section, verses 14 all the way to 26, we're only going to look at half of it today, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll finish it. It's too much to cover only in in one sermon, but I want to give you the whole context of it. So follow with me, James 2, beginning in verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith, And I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. But the demons also believe, and they shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. If there's anything today that convicts your heart, know that it comes from a shepherd, an earthly shepherd, who cares for you and loves you. But much more than that, it comes from the divine shepherd who loves, because he disciplines his children with great care, to show us our sin and to point us to our need for growth, and he points us to our hope in Christ and our position that we have in him. Today is a doozy. It's a tough message. Hang in there. Next week, we'll give more clarity as well. Today is a very sobering passage that we need to understand and we need clarity on because The title of my sermon, I've titled it, One's Profession of Faith Without the Demonstration of Works is Worthless. And that is what verses 14 through 20 teach. May the Lord help as we look into the word together. Imagine you're late to at a very important meeting. You're 35 minutes late. You finally enter your office. You burst into the conference room. You throw open the doors and you loudly exclaim, Sorry, I'm late. I had a flat tire on the way. And while I was changing my flat tire on the side of the freeway, an 18-wheeler plowed me over. Absolutely crushed me. Just nailed me head on. So sorry, I'm a little bit late. And you go and sit down and you tell them to proceed with the meeting. At that point, it would be silent. Everybody would be looking at you. Maybe their heads would be tilted a little bit. And they would wonder one of two things. Number one, you've either gone crazy or number two, you're lying. You've gone crazy or you're lying because nobody is hit by the power and force of an 18-wheeler truck and you leave unchanged. Nobody. just doesn't happen. And yet how many people say that they have been hit by the power and force of God Almighty? And they come away unchanged. Do you know anybody like that? Have you ever met someone like that? Where they say that they've met God. They say that they've had an encounter with God. They say that they prayed a prayer, signed a card, raised a hand, walked an aisle, did whatever they say they need to do. And yet their life remains unchanged. There are many people like that, and the Bible even lists many like that, and there's many categories of people that are like that. First, there are the false teachers that are like that. According to 2 Peter chapter 2 and the book of Jude, even Zephaniah chapter 3, there are the false teachers who say that they know God, but they deny him by their works. But then there's another category, and these are the moralists, the moralists. These are those like we might call him Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He was a very moral man. He was was the teacher in Israel. Matthew chapter 23, the, the Pharisees, they were the best at moralism. They had a great outward facade and a great profession But really, when it came down to it, their heart and their life and their conduct was not looking to God. And then you have the category of the self-righteous. The self-righteous. These are those like in Philippians chapter 3. I am of the, the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I am a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was circumcised on the eighth day. These are those who love to look at themselves for confidence with standing before a holy God. They love to profess their own goodness when talking about their spiritual condition. And then there's a fourth category. These are just kind of the general religious folk. The general religious folk, like Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, he knew the law, he knew the prophets, he could profess with the best of them that he knew God, but his life denied it. these are those in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, many, many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, let me into your kingdom. Did I not do all these great things in your name? And yet he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. There's a fifth category, though. A fifth category of these kinds of people who say that they may have had an encounter with God, but yet their life betrays it. It is deceived churchgoers. Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 12 are two of the five warnings in the book of Hebrews that are clear warnings to those who say, I know God, but if we go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth. The author of Hebrews says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins for someone like that. It's like in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, for those who might be among the assembly, and yet they're liars, they're thieves, they're fornicators, they're drunkards, they're homosexuals, they're adulterers, they're they're cheaters, and Paul says in Corinthians, don't be deceived. Those who live this way shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians chapter 5 says the same thing, that the, that the fornicators and the liars and the drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. How many people are there who make the profession, I've had an encounter with God? I know God. I am religious. I am a Christian. And yet you look at their life and their life doesn't match what they profess with their words. I think some of the most deceived who fit into this camp, this might be a sixth category. I want to camp on this for a minute in my introduction. Another category of those who are deceived are the Roman Catholics. The Roman Catholic religion is Satan's masterpiece. Masterpiece. The Roman Catholic teaching on our text in James 2, verses 14 to 26, it needs to be clarified for us today because many Catholics, if they know their Bible and if they know the Catholic dogma, they'll go here eventually. Because they'll go here because they will try to say that true salvation comes by faith and your works. That's how you get saved Faith and your works. And they'll go right to verse 24. You can look at it. I'm going to explain it more next week. But I want you to see the context here. Verse 24, they're going to say, Look, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. That's That's what the Roman Catholic is going to say to you. See, it says it right there in your Bible. Let's clarify a few things. The Roman Catholic dogma. That is according to the catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. I'm even going to give you paragraph numbers if you want to jot these down. If you have Catholic friends, you can give this to them. The Roman Catholic Gospel, it's not a gospel, it's a false gospel, but it's their message. It emphasizes what man must do in order to be saved rather than what Jesus has fully accomplished on the cross once and for all. Here's what they believe and they teach. The Roman Catholic doctrine teaches that you must have the necessity of doing good works in order to be saved. Catechism, paragraph 2016. You must receive the sacraments in order to be saved, paragraph 1129. You must attend the mass if you're going to be saved, paragraph 1405. Well, you have to keep the law to be saved, paragraph 2068. And of course, you have to buy indulgences as well, paragraph 1498. And you have to believe in purgatory and endure through it paragraph 1030. It was in the Council of Trent in the sixth session from 1547. It was a response to the Reformation that the Roman Catholic Church responded to the Reformation, and the Roman Catholic Church, in this Council of Trent, came up with some canons of teaching and canons of doctrine, and every single one of the canons end with this. Let him be anathema. Let him be anathema. If you believe this, let him be anathema. If you believe this, let him be anathema. These are curses. Here's what they teach on canon number 9. If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared by the action of his own doing and will, if you believe that, let him be anathema. So by the Roman Catholic Church, by their own doctrine and dogma, if you believe that salvation is a free gift given by grace through faith in Christ, not by your own works, the Roman Catholic teaching declares you cursed to hell. We need clarity on this. Does the Bible teach That salvation comes by faith and works? Is it your good deeds plus your faith in Jesus that equals salvation? Is that what the Bible teaches? It's what the Roman Catholic doctrine teaches. Let me give you some scriptures that I think will give very clear, solid, exegetical, timeless, authoritative refutations of the damning errors of the Roman Catholic Church. I'm just going to read for you some of the clearest scriptures that I think clearly spell out that salvation is not by works, but salvation is only by faith in Christ apart from our own works let me just give these to you. Romans chapter 3, verses 28 to 30. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Is God a God of the Jews only? Is he not a God of the Gentiles also? Yes, he is of the Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is One, that's what God does. Whether he's Jew or Gentile, the only way that you're justified is by faith. Romans chapter 4 and verse 3, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And then right after that, Romans 4 verse 5 To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly man, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Another one that I love to go to with Roman Catholics, because it mentions it three times in this one verse. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Nevertheless, we know that a man is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. That's pretty clear. Right after that, Galatians 2.21, I don't nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, get this, Jesus died Needlessly. I mean, if you could be saved by your own law-keeping, Paul says in Galatians 2:21, then Jesus died needlessly for no reason. I read Ephesians 2 at the beginning: for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. Philippians 3:9 I want to be found in Christ not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Why do I give you all those scriptures? Because our authority is not tradition. Our authority is not a council. Our authority is not a man. Our authority is not a people. Our authority is the very word of God. And the word of God could not be clearer that in order to be saved, one must have faith in Christ. That's what leads to justification. And that is what will result in a life of good works. That's what the Bible teaches But the Roman Catholic doctrine teaches that in order to be saved, you must believe plus you must have good works in order to be justified. And that is wrong. No one, no one, no one will ever go to heaven by faith and works. It is only by faith in Jesus Christ that saves. And yet, if somebody has a true faith in Jesus Christ that saves, it will always show itself in a life of good works. So you're not saved by your works, but you are saved unto good works. You're not saved because of your good works, But you are saved unto a life of good works. That's what Paul teaches in his letters. And that's what James teaches right here in James chapter 2. When God saves and when God regenerates, he transforms you and you are zealous for good works. Now, that's not my, I didn't make that up. That's what Paul says in Titus, that those whom he saves are zealous for good deeds. Zealous for good deeds. But let me just say a quick word about Paul and James. Because you could read Romans chapter 3, and then you could have side by side James chapter 2, and you might have a couple of questions that come into your mind, and you might think those seem to say very different things. Paul says you're justified by faith, and yet James says you're justified by works. Which is it? Let me clarify. They're dealing with completely different topics. What do you mean? When Paul writes a little bit later, after James has already been written, Paul is not talking about the Christian living his life, Paul is dealing with the self-righteous when Paul says, your works cannot get you to God in justification. Paul is dealing with self-righteousness. You'll never get to God by your good works. James, who's writing much earlier in the Christian era, James is dealing with a dead orthodoxy among early Christians. And he says, your works prove that you're growing in your walk. James is not arguing how to get saved. I'm going to show you that in a minute. He's already writing to Christians. What James is dealing with is a dead orthodoxy, just kind of a lukewarmness. He's a good pastor. He wants the believers to grow. He wants his believers, he wants his church to be growing in their walk. So when Paul deals with justification, Paul is writing about those who are to be saved, not by works. When James is writing, he's writing to those who are already saved. You must live a life of good works. The whole way in which they're writing is different. Why? Because they have different purposes that they're addressing. James is a great pastor. He's a great pastor. And the people that he's writing to are already believers, but it's almost like James the pastor says, you're not growing like I want. You're not as vibrant as I wish. It's like there was a stagnation that That came across the early professing church and James the pastor is writing to those who are believers and he says I want you to excel still more I want you to prove your faith by a life of good works again James is not writing telling people how to get saved Paul will do that later in Romans and Galatians and Philippians. James is writing to believers. And we know that because of chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren. He calls them brethren. When you encounter various trials because you know that the testing of your faith. So they've already they've already ha- they have faith. They're already believers. And then in chapter 1 verse 18, James tells them in the exercise of God's will, he brought you forth by the word of truth. You've been regenerated. You've been born again. So these are already believers. We can even give one more clear proof for that in James chapter 4 and in verse 5. Do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose, that he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us? So they even have the spirit of God living in them. These are believers. So again, James is not writing, telling you how to get saved. He's not writing in this section here, telling you, here's how you get to God and become a Christian. That's not James's motive. James is a great pastor, writing to believers, and he says, I want you to grow. I want you to grow more. And and you have faith, and you've been born again, and you're walking with God, and you have the Spirit of God living in you, but I want you to be more fruitful. I want you to live a life of more good works. I want you to zealously Pursue holiness. Well, that's my desire for you. That's what James wanted for the believers. That's the pastor's desire for the church. And that's what James is doing. Now, in our section, look at James 2. In verses 14 to 20, what we're going to look at today, James is going to give us a very sobering section here on the deadness of faith without works. The deadness of faith without works. If you say that you have faith, but you have no works, it's dead. That's today. That's what we're going to look at. Next week, in verses 21 to 26, we will look at the demonstration of faith with works. And we'll see that with two examples, Abraham and Rahab. So today we're looking at a dead faith. Next week, we're looking at a dynamic faith. Today, we're looking at a dead faith, somebody who just professes to know God, but they don't show it nor prove it. That faith cannot save him. Next week, we will see examples of a living, of a dynamic faith in Abraham and Rahab. Now, look at verse 17. Look at verse 17. In verse 17, James says, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. See that? And then you look at verse 20, when James says, Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? And then look at the very end of our section, verse 26. Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Three times. I mean, nearly word for word, James will repeat himself. He'll repeat himself. He'll repeat himself because he wants you to know profession of faith without the evidence of works is worthless. I'm going to give you my outline and you're going to think, Jeff, you're just repeating yourself. You're just repeating yourself. You're just repeating yourself <laughs> because James does that. He does it three times. I'm going to do it five times in the five points, but I pray that this will be helpful to drive the very simple point home. Faith Without works is dead. And I want to show you that from the text in five simple words. You can jot them down. They're very simple. And we'll just walk through them fairly quickly. But I want you to understand this. Number one, faith without works is worthless. Number two, faith without works is loveless. Number three, faith without works is lifeless. Number four, faith without works is incompleteness. Just to go with it, I had to add the ness on the Incompleteness. Number five, faith without works is useless. We want to walk through each of these and And really, they're all teaching and undergirding the very same heading and the very same point. Faith without works is dead, verse 17. Faith without deeds is useless, verse 20. Faith without deeds is dead, verse 26. Let's go through these one by one. If you didn't get all of those, you can get them again. As we go through, number one, faith without works is worthless, is worthless. Verse 14, James says, what use is it, my brethren? He's writing to believers. You see that there, my brethren? He's writing to Christians. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? You know people like this. You work with people like this. You have neighbors like this. You probably have loved ones that fit in this category. Oh, there's many who profess the name of Jesus, many who profess their hope of going to heaven and their hope of their own goodness. They say with one person, I've been baptized, I'm catechized, And I'm sanitized from all major sins. What's the profit? What's the benefit? What's the worth? If you say that you have faith, but you have no works, you have no action, you have no obedience, you have no pursuit of Christ. Look at what verse 14 says. Can that faith save him? That's a very kind way our English puts it. The Greek isn't so kind. There's two ways to put a negative in the Greek. It's very clear in the Greek. It's expecting a no answer. It might be rendered at the end of verse 14. Surely that faith won't save him, will it? That's kind of the idea. That's kind of the thinking behind this. Surely that kind of profession won't save him, will it? Paul, when he writes in the book of Romans, he absolutely denies pre-conversion works in order to be accepted by God. James, when James is writing right here, he shows the absolute necessity of post-conversion action that demonstrates your obedience to God. Why? Because what James is writing, and he's been seeking to show this all through his letter, is a true faith is a working faith. A true faith is an obedient faith. Look, American evangelicalism in our day, and it's being imported all over the world, is an easy believism lie. I mean, you just say a prayer and you ask Jesus into your heart and you do this deed and you do this good work and you're good with God. And you can live however you want and you can conduct yourself however you desire. And we've even come up with the phrase, a carnal Christian that somebody can well they're not a non-christian but yet they're not a zealous christian so they're a tr- they're a christian but they're just living a life of sin but that third category doesn't exist it doesn't exist Paul uh, James says right here in James 2:14, what use? What profit? What benefit is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? I mean, really, can that profession of faith save him? James's answer, a good pastor, he's very clear, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Profession without practice Lip service without submission to Christ is absolutely worthless. And we read a little bit about this in Titus chapter 1. And we read in Titus 1 about the false teachers. Listen to what Titus uh, uh, chapter 1 says in verse 16. Many profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Oh, many profess to know God, but they deny him by their deeds and their life. Faith without works is worthless number one. Let, let, let us take heart inventory and appropriate self-examination as we hear the word of God, what Pastor James is saying, and ensure that this doesn't describe us. Faith without works is number one, worthless. Number two, number two, faith without works is loveless. Faith without works is loveless. Now, look at what Pastor James does in verse 15. Look at your Bible here. Then he's going to give another question. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to the brother, "Ah, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you don't give him what is necessary for their body, what use is that? I mean, what use is that? I want to develop this more next week. So I'll give you a little bit of a preview here in this point. What are the works? Faith and works in the whole section here. I think the works in James 2 is love, action, service, toward other people. I think that's what James is driving at in the context of James chapter 2. We need to have faith in Christ, and we prove that, we demonstrate that with a vibrant action and love and service of compassion and care toward others. That's what James is saying. You can profess to have faith, but if you have no action of love, James the pastor says it's a loveless facade it's hollow. It's like a balloon. You can look good on the outside. You can paint on it. You can draw on it. You've all seen the balloons. They can look great, but you poke it with a pin and it pops. We don't want to be like that. We don't want to just be hollow. We must have love. So verse 15 is a little parable. It's a little illustration. And, and that's what James does. He says, if there's a fellow believer, he calls him a brother. And let's just say he's without clothing and he's in need of food and you notice the need and you see the need and you recognize that there's something that needs to be done. And yet James uses language. It's actually almost humorous in the original language. You say to him, go on your way. Good luck. Be warm and be filled. But you do nothing to help him. It's kind of like Pastor James would scratch his head and say, what kind of faith is that? What benefit is that? What value is that? What worth is that? James would say, that's a fraud. What use is that? Maybe I can illustrate it with this story. There was a number of centuries ago that there was a European queen uh, who left her coachman, the driver of her horse-drawn carriage, sitting outside during the very, very cold winter when she attended a theater one evening. The drama that she went to watch was, it was a heart-wrenching tragedy and and she was so gripped that she sobbed her way. I mean, just through hours of this tragedy, this show, this theater. And she watched the entire performance. And when it was all over, she, she was so touched emotionally, wiping away all of her tears. She went back to her coach. And she discovered that her coachman that she left outside in the cold had frozen to death. But she didn't even shed a tear. Didn't even care at all. Which is sort of ironic that she would be so deeply moved by a fictional tragedy play, but yet completely untouched by a real tragedy that she was directly responsible for. How, how heartless. How loveless. And yet what James the pastor is saying is how many professing believers go to the theater, as it were, to hear the truth, but then they leave and go unchanged, unaffected, unholy, unloving throughout their week. One who professes faith in Jesus, but he has no actions of love toward others, James would say, that's loveless. That's not a true, genuine faith. Now, the Apostle John has a lot to say on that in 1 John chapters 3 and 4 about a true and saving faith shows itself in a life of love. And that's what James is teaching right here. Faith without works, faith without action, faith without demonstration. Number one is worthless. Number two, it is loveless. And number three, let me give you number three, it is lifeless, lifeless. Now look with me at verses 17 and 18. Now here we have James, the pastor, giving another couple of verses that teach the same truth. Verse 17, even so faith, if it has no works, meaning action, demonstration, it's dead. It's lifeless. It's dead being by itself. Well, verse 18, somebody may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. James is just giving a simple statement of wisdom and truth. Faith without works is dead. What does that mean? Unprofitable, useless, without any value, without any life. It's dead. Being by itself, if not demonstrated, by godly action. And then verse 18, what, what a profound teacher James is. He, he gives a little imaginary objector. You can almost hear somebody saying, I object to what you're saying, James. I think you're being a little too harsh. Verse 18, look at what he says. Somebody might say, well, you have faith. And I have works. It's almost today like somebody saying, hey, 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 we're, we're both Christians around here. We just might have different emphases. I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. James would say, really? Really? That that's not the case at all. No, if someone says I have faith, You have faith, but I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. I think of the man Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa, Paul, stood on trial and gave testimony before Herod in the book of Acts. He knew his Hebrew Bible. He knew the prophets. Paul even said, Herod, you believe him, don't you? I know that you do. He had an intellectual faith. But that was dead. Herod heard Paul. Herod heard the gospel. He heard the testimony of Paul. And yet Herod Agrippa got up and he left unchanged. He knew the truth. He heard the truth. He was unchanged by the truth. And he remained lifeless. Totally lifeless. Unchanged. Or maybe another another way to illustrate this. I love this story. I came across it some time ago. Of the man Elias Keach. True story, Elias Keach. He came to the Americas, he came to America in the late 17th century, and he came with his father, who was a very famous Baptist minister. His name was Benjamin Keach. Well, Elias was became a minister. He became a pastor to support himself. One day the man Elias Keach stood up in the pulpit to preach. And many people came to hear this man preach the word. They benefited from him. They enjoyed it. They loved the oratory. They loved the clear and the polished sermons that he preached. He spoke very well until he was preaching one day. He got very far through his sermon and then he had a long pause. And everybody looked and they wondered what happened to the pastor Eyewitnesses even said he he looked like a man who was utterly astonished. People in the congregation thought maybe maybe he's struck with a disorder, maybe something happened to him. But as the tears began to flow down his face, and he began to tremble in his heart in the pulpit. The preacher had been converted in preaching his own sermon. He professed faith, but in reality, he was lifeless. He professed faith in Christ, but it was faith that had no genuine demonstration of works. And verse 17, James would say, that's dead. That's lifeless. That is not a true faith. Faith without works, number one, is worthless. Number two, it is loveless. Number three, it is lifeless. Let me give you number four. It is incompleteness. Oh, now this is a doozy here. Number four, it is incompleteness. Fasten your seatbelt for this. Look at verse 19. Because we love theology. We love truth. We love orthodoxy. But let's just beware and be on guard that doctrine, though it is important, doctrine by itself is not enough. Verse 19, James the pastor says, you believe that God is one? Maybe echoing from the Shema in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You believe what the Bible says about God? Good, James says. You do well? Guess what? The demons. The demons believe that. You've got good doctrine? Good So do the demons. And they shudder. There is something that we might call a demon faith. A demon faith. All the demons know truth about God. And they know truth about Christ. And they know truth about the Spirit. And all they know the truth about the Gospel. But they hate it. I mean... Let's just be clear on our demonology. Demons are monotheists. They know there's only one God. They know that. And the demons believe that the Bible is inerrant and infallible. The demons know that. They believe that. And the demons know that Jesus is the Son of God. And they know, without a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus is the only way of salvation. They know that. They even profess that in the Gospel of Mark. Mark. The demons know that salvation is by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ, apart from any works that you could ever contribute. The demons know that. And the demons also know that Jesus died. And they know that he was buried. And they know that three days later he rose from the dead. The demons know that. And the demons know that Jesus ascended into heaven and he is seated at the Father's right hand. And he is going to come back again one day to judge. The demons know that. They even know that there's a literal heaven and a literal hell. They know that. But they hate it. They hate God. They hate the gospel they hate the truth and they don't follow christ and they don't willingly submit to the truth well they believe now this is sobering for me i love theology so do you we love reform theology rightly so we study our theology books, and rightly so. But we have to remember that all of the knowledge and intellect and truth and orthodoxy, as important as it is, is incomplete. Why is it that men that I went to seminary with have turned away from the faith? They were trained at John MacArthur Seminary. Why is it that a man that went to the seminary where I went to is now buddy-buddy with the health, wealth, prosperity preachers? How does that happen? Doctrine, doctrine, doctrine is important. The right knowledge is important. And as important knowledge is, it's Incomplete. That's a sobering thing for us because you've got your study Bible, you've got your podcasts, you've got your theology books, you've got your, your library, of your things that you love to study, but make sure that all that you're learning and all that you're studying and all that you're taking in doesn't just stick here. But it impacts your heart and the way that you live your life. Your love for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what James says. Verse 19, you believe that God is one. You've got good theology. You do well, but guess what? The demons also believe and they shudder. What an amazing word for shudder there. It's a Greek word that means uncontainable, violent shaking from extreme fear. It's a rare word in the New Testament and it's a reaction of fear that is provoked only by contact with God. A sheer trembling with extreme fear, uncontrollable, violent shaking before God. They know God, but they don't follow him, submit to him, nor love him. Faith without works is incompleteness. One more, number five. Faith without works is useless. It's useless. And this is where we end our study for today, right here in verse 20. The word is right here in verse 20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Are you willing to recognize this? Now, James, the pastor, calls him a foolish fellow. The Greek word just simply refers to an empty talker. Uh, You you, you can claim the name of Jesus all day long. You You can claim that you're a Christian all day long. You're just an empty professing man. Are you willing to acknowledge, Mr. Empty Talker, that faith without works now, the word is interesting, useless. The Greek word is most often translated lazy. Well, what do you mean? Faith without works is lazy. What does that mean? Well, what is a lazy person? Unproductive. Useless. Good for nothing. The book of Proverbs makes that very clear. Faith without works is useless. It's non-working. It's unproductive. Uh, What do we want? We want a true faith that is a dynamic faith, an action faith, an obedient faith, a working faith. Isn't that what James the pastor has been saying all along? Don't just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer of the word. True and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, right? He's been talking about how we live. James wants the true believers to grow in their holiness. To grow in their holiness. Quite simply, a workless faith is a worthless faith. And there's a lot of this out there. I mean, it's easy for, for people to say, I know God. I know Jesus. I go to church. I go to the church down the road. I go to the church that has a billboard off the freeway, the, the guy who's on TV. I, I go to that church. I'm fine. I've had the experience. I've made the decision. I've had this meaningful religious feeling. But James would say, but what does your life demonstrate? What does your life prove? I want to take you to a couple of scriptures. Let me show you this a little bit more just as we transition to our conclusion. Go to the words of Jesus with me in Luke chapter 6. We've read these before so many times, especially the Sermon on the Mount here when we preached through the book of Luke years ago. Luke 6, verses 43 to 45. you got to get this. This is so key for parenting, it's true for pastoring, it's true for christian living, it's true for relationships. We need to hear this. Luke 6:43, there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand is there a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit for men don't gather figs from thorns nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush verse 45 here's the key the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil do you see that there So the the life that you're living will reveal the heart condition. It will reveal the heart condition. Well, turn with me a little bit more to Galatians. Look at Galatians chapter 5. Now, Paul is writing to churches in the region of Galatia. And he tells them in Galatians five sixteen to walk by the Spirit. This is what he wants believers to do. You got to walk by the Spirit. But look at Galatians five verse nineteen. Look at how James just lays it. Uh, James, look at how Paul clearly lays it out for us. Galatians five nineteen. Now the deeds of the flesh, the works of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you, now notice this, that those who practice, This is not just one person who sins here and then they confess it and they turn from it. No, this is the person who practices such things. Your your life, their conduct is marked by this. Uh, Paul says here, as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God turn with me back to one more occasion to the words of our Lord in Matthew chapter 7. This is the very end of the sermon on the mount. Just after describing, you will know them by their fruits, the good tree and the bad tree. We need to see this. I know we're all familiar with it. They're very familiar words. But see it afresh in your copy of God's word. Matthew 7:21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, who's going to enter, Jesus? But he who does the will of my Father. Jesus is not saying you go to heaven by your good works. He's saying right here, if you're going to call me Lord, Lord, you need to prove that. By doing the will of my Father who's in heaven. Verse 22, many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What is James Saying, what is Jesus saying? What is Paul saying in Galatians there? One's profession of faith without the demonstration of works is worthless. Well, you say, well, Jeff, what is a true, vibrant, saving faith? I'm glad you asked. That's the whole topic for next Sunday. It is an intellectual faith, yes. But it's an appropriating faith. You must apply it to your life. It is a personal faith. I can't save you. You can't save me. We can't save our kids. It must be a persevering faith to trust confidently and fully in Jesus. A true saving faith has to be an obedient faith. I will follow you, Lord, wherever you lead. A true saving faith, don't miss this, it is a God-given faith. You can't do this on your own. Nor can you sustain it on your own. Nor can you keep a godly faith going on your own. It is a God-given faith. So I ask: You're here today. You profess. You're here today, and you would raise your hand and say, "Yes, I believe Jesus is my Savior and my Lord. I believe I'm a Christian." Pastor James, Pastor Jeff, any godly friend would say, "What does the demonstration of your life show? What does the fruit of your life reveal?" Child of God, these are sobering words. I mean, they're heart-probing words. Reflect on them, examine them, take inventory of your life, do heart-searching work. Child of God, you affirm your faith in Christ, excel still more. Excel still more. I wonder in closing, just very quickly, How many of you in this place, the account in James, the story here, has been your story and my story? I grew up knowing truth, learning truth, hearing truth, professing truth. I grew up sitting under truth. I had a Bible. I read my Bible. I knew my Bible. I went to church where a Bible was taught. Went on mission trips. I could talk about God. I could talk about theology. And I did. I could profess. I could talk theology. I could have the definition of a man who called himself a Christian. But my heart passion was not Christ. Can you relate? The dynamic pursuit of my life was not Jesus Christ, nor was it holiness. Oh, I had an intellectual faith, but I did not have heart affection for Christ. I was a lost man. Can you relate, anybody? Can you relate to that? Till I went to college. 2001, Los Angeles, California, little Bible church, man taught the word. I don't remember everything that was said, but I do remember this, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself. Do you not know that Christ is in you unless you fail the test? Well, I failed the test. I was not a true believer. I knew about God. Oh, I had a profession of faith. But God, in his rich mercy, chose to save a man who knew about God to transform my heart so that I would actually love the Savior and want to obey him. And I trust God has done that with you as well. That's the testimony of of God and what he does in the hearts of his people. So may the Lord cause all of us to take heart inventory with these difficult words in James chapter two and say, Lord, as I examine my own heart, measuring myself by the scripture, as I profess Christ, Do I have a genuine faith that shows itself in a life of good works? May God help us as we do that. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take the truth that we have all heard, the very sobering words that we have all heard, and, oh God, that we would look deeply at the fruit of our life. And that, O Lord, that would cause us to look deeply into our hearts to ensure that we are truly, genuinely resting in Jesus Christ, in him alone. Thank you, O God, that salvation is only by grace, only by faith in Christ and him alone. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God, you prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Help us this very week to diligently, diligently walk in obedience to you. In Jesus' name, amen.